after the joyfully hilarious setting we considered in our last episode. 120 gallons of wine seemingly manifested out of nowhere. Jesus and his first disciples returned south again, not to the Judean wilderness where they'd first met him, but, as it was nearing the Passover, to the capital itself. The journey south was like the journey north had been, walking, talking, getting to know each other, enjoying the presence of this so unexpected man, I'll say it again, seemingly out of nowhere. Everything about that southward trip was entirely pleasant for his new friends. The weather was warm and comfortable. Everyone had that feeling like being on holiday. The experience of being with Jesus just brought such peace. They had that wonderful sense that here was a person who could bring divine order to one's life, who could make it all make sense for once. What a good feeling that is, is something they were all probably thinking and feeling. Well, a few days later, here is the scene. A few of the remaining vendors are sitting on broken crates or all the way down on the tile work in the open air under the dome of the sky visible from the court of Herod's temple. Around them is a chaos difficult to describe. There are shattered planks from the tables from which these vendors used to deal their wares or change their coins. There are feathers fur, and on the ground, all sorts of broken items. There is, let's be real, urine and feces from the immense fright of the animals at that man. There are the seller's overrobes that have fallen next to their stalls and then been tracked through the muck. There are the absences of these men's purses that have been snatched by timely passers-by, passing as... That madman raged through the court, whipping and smashing. Now he has thrown aside his braided whip and stands facing the temple authorities. He is still breathing heavily with the exertion of all he's done. His disciples are standing off to one side, wide-eyed, looking at all that's happened. And a question is lobbed at Jesus, which absolutely has an air of danger about it. What gives you the right to do this? The disciples now watch the eyes of Jesus narrow before he answers. Tear down this temple, and in three days, I will resurrect it. That feeling of a few days before, is now gone for his disciples. The comfortable sensation of a holiday, peace, orderliness. Instead, in place of these, is the anger of the crowds. The feeling of personal, physical danger, the disorder literally wrought by Jesus, and the sense that none of this makes sense.
My friends, I, I want you now to listen to a portion of Hebrews 9. And this, by the way, is a description of the space beyond where Jesus was on that particular day. So listen to it almost in its entirety. And then I want to make a few comments and kind of walk back through it. Again, from Hebrews 9. Now, the first agreement had certain rules for the service of God, and it had a sanctuary, a holy place in this world for the eternal God. A tent was erected. In the outer compartment were placed the lamp standard, the table, and the sacred loaves. Inside, beyond the curtain, was the inner tent called the Holy of Holies, in which were the golden censer and the gold inlaid Ark of the Agreement, containing the gold jar of manna, Aaron's budding staff, and the stone tablets inscribed with the words of the actual agreement. Above these things were fixed representations of the cherubim of glory, casting their shadow over the ark's covering, known as the mercy seat. All this is full of meaning, but we cannot enter now into a detailed explanation. Well, and I would say to you, if he won't, well, I will. So let's go back from the beginning, because this is... I think deeply important, especially given what Jesus has just done in the temple at the very outset of his ministry. Back to the beginning. Now, the first agreement had certain rules for the service of God, and it had a sanctuary, a holy place in this world for the eternal God. I think you and I listen to that, and we don't particularly pay attention to its precise meaning. Before Jesus, there was an original agreement with God, and there were exact, precise rules for the service of following him. Moreover, there was a single legitimate sanctuary, meaning only one place in all the world where the presence of God, the eternal God, was present. Imagine that. Imagine waking up in the suburbs of Jerusalem every day, and there, right where you could see it, was the only place where God, Yahweh, lived. I think we think that such concreteness might have been an aid to their faith. Well, all of Old Covenant history says the exact opposite. One massive set of rules and one massive building housing God. Do you have a sense of the feeling of those times? The writer of Hebrews goes on. A tent was erected, and I would add, now in Jesus' day, Herod's temple. In the outer compartment were placed the lamp standard, the table, and the sacred loaves. Now, what I want to do here is jump ahead a little bit and do just a little bit of a crossover between what was, meaning what had been, what is on that day when Jesus is doing the wrecking, and what is to come through that very Jesus. So, bear with me. What the writer of Hebrews has just described is the contents of the holy place, both in the original tabernacle and in both the later temples, Solomon's and Herod's. And what did he say was housed within? The lampstand, which was on the left when you entered, the table of incense straight ahead, 
and the sacred loaves, or showbread, which were on the right. A ministering priest, like John the Baptist's father, if you remember, back in Luke 1, would have entered this space specifically to tend to that incense. And so again, what would he have seen? Bread, light, and the, let's call it, aromatic mysteriousness filling up the space. My friends, Jesus himself is the bread of life, the light of the world, and the bringer of that spiritual mystery, which is the Holy Spirit. But I digress. Or do I? I'll go on. Inside, beyond the curtain, was the inner tent, called the Holy of Holies, in which were the golden censer and the gold inlaid Ark of the Agreement, containing the golden jar of manna, Aaron's budding staff, and the stone tablets inscribed with the words of the actual agreement. So, Entering the Holy of Holies, let's let my digression continue. We would have passed through the 40-foot-tall, heavy, woven curtain, and looking ahead, what do we see? The golden Ark of the Covenant, which contained what? A jar of ancient manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and Moses' stone tablets engraved with the original words of the commands. So what in the world might I be driving at here specific to our context in today's passage? Well, I'm glad you asked. Probably about a year and a half after this, when confronted by a crowd passionate about Moses and his manna, this is how Jesus responds to them. Listen. What matters is not that Moses gave you bread from heaven, but that my Father is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God which comes down from heaven gives life to the world. And by the way, the writer of Hebrews, when comparing and contrasting Jesus with the chosenness of the old, meaning Aaron's line, this is what the writer of Hebrews has to say in Hebrews 7. Here is the high priest we need, A man who is holy, faultless, unstained, beyond the very reach of sin, and lifted to the very heavens. There is no need for him, like the high priests we know, i.e. Aaron, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the people's. He made one sacrifice once for all when he offered up himself. The law makes for its high priests men of human weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, makes for high priest the Son, who is perfect forever. And also, the prophet Jeremiah, when looking out far past his own lifetime, getting a glimpse of the face of this Jesus, well, he had this to say about the covenant to come and the law to be revealed. Listen, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after their time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So again, manna, the staff, the tablets. Bread from heaven, the chosen priest, the old covenant's law. You know, I would imagine that you are familiar 
with the idea of Jesus acting as our intercessor before the Father, our go-between, well, I also want you to know a different role he plays, has always played, and will always play. With reference to everything in the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and the whole temple, friends, Jesus is our supercessor. He is above all else, superseding everything that had ever been before him. In fact, I want you to listen to the next super, meaning above, thing about him. Above these things were fixed representations of the cherubim of glory, casting their shadow over the ark's covering, known as the mercy seat. Friends, I would argue that one of the most magnificent things about Jesus is that his throne is ultimately synonymous with being the mercy seat of heaven. He sits enthroned to invite, to receive, to set free, not to judge, but to bestow his mercy on all who'd come. Is that how we both understand and also talk about the posture of his heart? That he came, according to the words of John 12, 47, not to condemn, but to save. And I want to read just the next, like, two verses in Hebrews 9, and then I'll kind of conclude. The writer of Hebrews goes on. Under this former arrangement, the outer tent was habitually used by the priests in the regular discharge of their religious duties, but the inner tent was entered once a year only by the high priest alone, bearing a sacrifice of shed blood to be offered for his own sins and those of the people. Now, I bet, and I would just guess, you've got to be asking yourself, what in the world is Eugene getting at today? Well, again, I'm glad you asked. Uh, My friends, in the very same way that Jesus, on that particular day of that particular Passover week, cleaning out that temple commerce, was the final meaning of every single part of the temple's inner sanctums, well, so he is today. He is the temple for our abiding in, the shed blood of the sacrifice, the purification of, let's say, the bronze laver, uh, the bread of life, the light of the world, the bringer of the spirit. He is, again, the bread from heaven, the final highest high priest and the one whose words fulfill the old law, finishing it by writing its truest meaning upon our hearts. Have we internalized all of that? I hope. But you might still ask, "Mm, so what? Well, here it is. The very one who was all of those things, who is all of those things, is just as happy to do the heavy lifting with all that is standing between you and all that. My friends, we all have constant, consistent need for our own tables to be overturned. We are His And yet we can always be his more. Other things have crept in, have continually crept in. We can trust him to do the upsetting of all that's trying to come between. He will be, let's call it as lovingly ruthless within the courts of our inner lives. And this is good for us. 
This is good for us often. So my question is this. Will you let him have his way? Will you trust him to do that inner work, that powerfully important inner work of whatever he needs to do? Thanks for listening.